All right, we're starting our study in Mark this week, and uh, I'll tell you what I'm looking at right now, because I am standing behind my pulpit, and I'm looking at a completely empty church, and it's not just because I said something that offended everyone last week. Um, we, I, I preached this sermon yesterday, Sunday. And it didn't record. We had technical difficulties, but because it's the first message, it's the, it's the introduction message to our new study in the Gospel of Mark, it's worth recording. So now I'm just pretending all of you are here, and I'm actually preaching at no one. But I know you're listening, so I'm thinking of you. This sermon is just for the people who are hearing this on the internet or a podcast or something like that. So... You, you people at home, turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. If you don't, I won't have any way of scolding you because I can't see you. But turn, turn in your Bibles to Mark. Um, I'm, turning, I'm turning mine to Mark. You're just going to have to trust me. But uh, in, in Mark chapter 1, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. If your Bible is anything like mine, you've got some words at the top of the page there. It says, the Gospel according to Mark. And then after that, you've got the number one. I've got a big number one right there, because that's telling you that it's the first chapter. Um, we're not even going to get as far as the number one. We're not going to get to the first word of the first verse of Mark, because today it's all about introduction. This message is all about introduction. Interestingly enough, Mark is the only gospel that provides no introduction um, Matthew has four chapters of setting the scene for Jesus' public ministry. The conception and birth of Christ. You've got the wise men. You've got the flight to Egypt. That's all introduction leading up to, you know, the good stuff. Jesus' ministry in Galilee, Jerusalem, around there. Uh, Luke gives the story of John the Baptist and his parents. You've got Zechariah and Elizabeth and Luke, as well as the Christmas story and the shepherds, and that's all nice. And uh, John, the Gospel of John, he says nothing about Christ's birth on this earth. He actually goes back further still and starts with in the beginning. And you think that's going to be a long introduction. Uh, he gives a theological treatise on the divinity of Jesus, right? Mark, Mark gives no introduction to the actual story. He starts right out. Uh, in the first few verses with John the Baptist, baptizes Jesus. By verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So Mark starts right out with Jesus going to work. And that's really what the gospel of Mark is about. The gospel of Mark is about Jesus working. Um, but even though no introduction is given, I'm going to give you one just the same. Uh, as we start the study of gospel, the Gospel of Mark this week, I need to give you fair warning that we're probably going to be studying Mark for a good year and a half to two years. Um, that's that's a uh, large undertaking, and I think it deserves an introduction. So in a normal introduction of a book of the Bible, we'd start asking these kind of uh, journalist questions, reporter questions like, uh, who wrote the book? When did they write the book? Who did he write the book to? You know, those kinds of questions, stuff like that. But even before we get to those questions, there's a different kind of question that needs to be asked. Uh, we have to have kind of a, a pre-introduction. Uh, if a person were to read the New Testament, if you handed them a New Testament, they'd probably start at the beginning uh, with Matthew. Most people read books from the beginning. 
If you started with Matthew, you'd read Matthew, and you'd read, you'd read about the ministry of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ. And then you'd think, that was a great story. Gee, what happens next? And then you turn over to Mark, and you go, hey, wait a minute. This is the same, this is the same story. This is the same thing. I just read this. Excuse me. And then you get to Luke, and you're wondering, are they all the same? Like, I know why the Bible's so long. Okay, I'm figuring this out. They just put the same stories in over and over again. That's, that doesn't count. You know, they, there are four Gospels, and this is why we need our pre-introduction. Okay, we have Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. Um, you know, we do not have one big gospel just combining all of them called Matharcucon. That doesn't exist. Okay, that doesn't exist. It's a question worth asking. Why are there four gospels? And uh, the Bible teacher, commentator, J. Vernon McGee, he would always say with his, you know, crotchety old man voice, he'd gripe about how people were trying to put a harmony of the gospels together. And he'd say, there's four of them for a reason. And he, he has a point. There's a place for comparing the four Gospels together, and we will certainly be cross-referencing Matthew, Luke, and John throughout our study. But the reason for comparing the Gospels, okay, the reason for having four Gospels, it's not so much to compare their similarities and to make one book out of the four, but it's to notice in each their differences. Each Gospel is unique. Mark is different than Matthew. It's different than Luke. It's different than John. And it's different on purpose. All right? There are four Gospels for a reason. We also, uh, you need to know this before we go on. Um, all four Gospels, they, well, all, all four Gospels share facts, and each of them have their differences. None of the Gospels, taken separately or together, provide a comprehensive biography of Jesus' life and ministry. Okay, the purpose of the Gospels uh, is not to give a history of Jesus' life. They're not like a biography that you'd, you know, get in the library today. They cover a very short amount of time, uh, focusing primarily on the last week of Christ's life, what we would call his Passion Week. So all four of the Gospels are similar in this. They focus in on one event, okay, one week, really. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's what each of the four Gospels is about. But as they look at Christ, the same Christ, the same Jesus, they are looking at him from four different angles and through four different lenses. Okay, so while all four Gospels refer to the same basic events, they present them in entirely different lights from different angles. And I've heard this compared to a family of four being, uh, you know, interviewed after witnessing a car accident. If you have the father, you ask him, you know, what happened? What did you see? He might be able to tell you about the make and model of the car and how fast it was going maybe or something like that. The mother, if you ask his wife, if you ask his wife uh, about the car accident, she may be able to tell you about, you know, the people in the car. If she knew the family and what color the car was and what color the people were wearing and what clothes they were wearing and where they bought them and if they bought them on sale or not. And the, the teenage son, if you asked, if you asked the teenage son, you know, what, what happened in this car accident, he'd blush and tell you he was looking at the pretty girl that was walking across the street at the time, but she had to jump out of the way when the car crashed. And then you ask his little sister maybe what happened and she would have noticed, you know, the puppy that was behind the car or the the girl in the back seat who had a doll that she was playing with. You know, these are all facts referring to the same events but they're told from different perspectives. 
All right? They're told from different perspectives. And that is, of course, a very dated analogy because nowadays the whole family would have been on their phones and the thing would have been on YouTube in, like, seconds. But all four gospel writers share the same events um, or saw the same events, excuse me, or heard the same events from other eyewitnesses. Um, but they made note of different things, okay? Different things were important to them. They were impacted by different events uh, and different characteristics of the same Jesus. Matthew, Matthew was a Jew. He presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. He provides a genealogy connecting Christ back to uh, King David. And then even before that to Abraham, who was the first, the first Jew, the father of the Jews. Okay, Matthew, he has three chapters dedicated to the Sermon on the Mount, which is essentially a, a constitution of the new kingdom. All right, now the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit was careful in choosing the human authors of his book, of his books. Matthew, who presented Jesus as the king of the Jews, was also the only gospel writer who had a government job himself. He was a tax collector for the, for the Roman Empire, right? So he was a Jew. Here's a Jew writing a gospel to other Jews, and it's appropriate that he would handle the subject matter in the way that he did. There's a human element in Matthew that connects the author to the subject matter. In Luke, in Luke you see Jesus as a man, and you see him as a man with weaknesses. Now think about this. Luke was a physician. He was a doctor, right? His career revolved around human weakness and frailty. And in telling his audience about Jesus, he is sure to bring about the human elements uh, more into focus, maybe, than the other evangelists do. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy from Mary, okay? Jesus' human mother instead of through his stepfather, Joseph. And then he goes all the way back to Adam, the first man, the man who fell, incidentally, and he connects Christ then to the fallen humanity that we are a part of. And that's what Luke does. Luke provides more instances of Jesus praying than do the other gospel writers. In Luke, you see angels minister to Jesus. And there's more, there's more details in Luke than the other gospels because Luke, being a physician, you know, probably a science guy into details, he probably wrote Luke with worse handwriting than the other gospel writers did too. John... John is really the odd one in the bunch. He presents Jesus as the Son of God and as God himself. Okay, there are more divine titles given to Jesus in John than in the other Gospels. Light of the world, the way, the truth, the life, good shepherd. Okay, these are titles for God taken mostly from the Old Testament. John presents Jesus as high and lifted up. And John, incidentally, was the only gospel writer who actually had the privilege of seeing Jesus in his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there when Jesus unveiled his glory. And so that's what John writes about. He says, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That mattered to John. That left an impact on John. And that's what John writes about. So we get to Mark. Here's Mark, the gospel we will be studying. Jesus in Mark is presented as the perfect servant of God. Mark presents Jesus as a man who had equality with God, but took on the form of a servant. If you wanted kind of a theme verse for Mark, you could actually take it from Philippians. You could go to Philippians 2, verse 7. It says that he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, 
and coming in the likeness of men. That idea of Jesus being a bondservant or even a slave is presented to us in Mark. The Gospel of Mark could be seen as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, 1 through 3 is a prophecy about Jesus, and it says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. This is Jesus, the servant of God, the perfect servant of God. And God, in choosing to have a gospel written with this focus, picks a guy named Mark. So who wrote Mark? Well, Mark was not an apostle. He was a servant of the apostles. Okay, no biography was ever written about this guy, and it is fitting that the Holy Spirit would use him, a guy without much rank or reputation to speak of, to pen the gospel that most clearly paints the picture of Jesus as the perfect servant. Mark himself was a servant of the apostles. So let's talk about this guy, Mark. Okay, we're past the pre-introduction now, in case you were wondering. This is the real introduction. Mark. Uh, when you ask people to name the 12 apostles, okay, the 12 disciples that followed Jesus around, um, you know, how many of the 12 can you name? People usually go, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, then they have to think about it real hard before they say Judas, kind of, but, okay, you'd actually already be wrong on two counts, because Matthew, Matthew was an apostle, and John was an apostle, but Mark and Luke were not. Mark was not one of the 12 disciples. Who was he? Mark was the cousin or nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas, a guy you read about in the book of Acts. Barnabas was the first, um, first guy in the church in Jerusalem to, to really welcome Paul. Okay? Paul had been you know, throwing Christians into jail, so everyone was pretty afraid of him. But Barnabas is like, no, I'll give this guy a chance. Introduces Bar uh, Paul to the apostles in Jerusalem. That's Barnabas. He had a nickname, son of encouragement. He was a counselor. Good guy. Okay, Barnabas had a cousin or a nephew named John Mark. John Mark uh, lived with his mom in Jerusalem. His mother, Mary, had a house in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts chapter 12. Acts 12, 12. This is the house that Peter went to after an angel had freed him from prison. All right, Peter had been thrown into prison, sentenced to death. An angel miraculously freed him from prison. And Peter goes to the house where the church was meeting for a prayer service. And it's, it's John Mark's mom's house. It's Mark's mom's house. So Mark was a part of the early church in Jerusalem. And he was a Jew. Uh, he went on a trip, a mission trip with Paul and Barnabas, but left early. That's in Acts chapter 13. Okay, don't really know why he left, but it definitely doesn't leave a good impression uh, on Paul. This made Paul not want to go on trips with him anymore. And there was a disagreement between he and Barnabas about that. So they actually split ways. Later on, uh, later on in Paul's life, either Paul got softer or Mark matured. I tend to think probably both of these things happened. And Mark became very close to Paul. Uh, he was with Paul during his first imprisonment in Philemon 24, serving him. He was a servant to the apostles. And Paul wanted Mark to be with him during his second imprisonment. You can read about that in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 11. Paul says, send Mark to me. He's useful to me for ministry. He was a servant of the apostles. Mark was also very close to the apostle Peter. He got kind of the, be the best of both worlds, uh, being a disciple of both Paul and Peter. 
And Second Peter 5.13, Peter talks about Mark, my son. And it's, it's widely accepted, mostly accepted, that this is the same Mark, in the same way that Timothy was a spiritual son to Paul. Paul addresses Timothy as my true son in the faith. Mark was a son in the faith to the apostle Peter. This connection with Peter is actually where the Gospel of Mark uh, comes from. This is where we get the Gospel of Mark. All right. For this, we're going to go back to early church history and writings we have from what we'd call the early church fathers, the church fathers. Um, one of the church fathers in the second century, Justin Martyr, we still have his writings, he called the Gospel of Mark Peter's Memoirs. Okay, Peter's Memories, basically. Even earlier than that, uh, within 60 years of Mark being written, a pastor named Papias said that Mark became Peter's interpreter and wrote accurately all that he remembered. A little later on, another church father, Irenaeus. Now, Irenaeus is an interesting guy just because uh, he had a mentor who was a disciple of the Apostle John's. So you've got some uh, apostolic connections there. But Irenaeus said that the Gospel of Mark was written when Peter and Paul were preaching the Gospel in Rome. What he says, he says, After their departure, Mark, Peter's disciple, has himself delivered to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. So Peter preached the Gospel, Mark wrote it down, and we have it as the Gospel of Mark. Okay, this is the Gospel of Mark as told to Mark by Peter. And it's actually interesting to note that if you wanted an outline of the Gospel of Mark, if you wanted an outline of the Gospel of Mark, the best place you could go would be Acts chapter 10. You could flip over to Acts chapter 10 and read Peter's sermon to Cornelius, okay, a Roman. And you can read that on your own, Acts chapter 10, verse 37 through 43. And that gives an outline of the Gospel of Mark. And if, if you study Peter's preaching in Acts, you can easily see the connection between Mark and Peter's preaching uh, that the early church fathers were talking about, that connection. So, I already mentioned that the early church believed Mark to be written during or right after Peter was in Rome preaching. It uh, probably went down something like this, okay? Peter's preaching a bunch of awesome sermons. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit. He's preaching about Jesus. He's telling a ton of people all about Jesus in the church. They just can't get enough about Jesus. And, you know, they don't have the Bible. They don't have the Bible. They've got uh, Matthew and James were probably written at this point, but those books are for Jews, uh, these are Romans wanting to know about Jesus. So they ask Mark, hey, Mark, could you talk to Peter about maybe writing this stuff down? And Mark asks him, and Peter says, I don't have time for that, but if, hey, if, you know, I've told you the gospel, so why don't you write it down? So he does. And uh, Mark writes the gospel of Mark as he was informed by Peter. Mark, uh, the book of Mark, is written for Gentiles. Okay, this could be the next point on your introduction. Mark is written to Gentiles specifically Gentiles in Rome. It really could be called the gospel to the Romans, uh, kind of like Paul's letter to the Romans is the epistle to the Romans. This is good for us uh, because we're, we're all Gentiles here. So you can, you can really see how Mark takes his audience into account throughout the gospel because all the Aramaic words and Hebrew traditions, they're all translated or explained for the reader. And when he does this, he translates them into Latin which kind of tells you who he's writing this to, probably the Romans. In Mark 12, verse 42, uh, he explains that the widow's mite is worth about four quadrants. 
Okay, he's translating into Latin. What he's doing here, he's converting pesos into dollars to make it easy to understand because otherwise it just doesn't make any sense. All of the Jewish customs are explained uh, as well as the geography of Jerusalem. Mark actually mentions, you know, where the Mount of Olives is in relation to the temple. And that's helpful for me because I've never been there. But all of this would have been very unnecessary for a Jew. It would have been unnecessary to the people that Matthew was writing his gospel to. Even a Jew who had never visited Rome wouldn't, or Jerusalem, excuse me, even a Jew who had never visited Jerusalem would know where the Mount of Olives was. So all these details that Mark puts in, they're very helpful for a Roman or a Gentile like myself. Okay, um, next question is uh, the date. When was Mark written? I have no idea. I wasn't there, so I don't, I don't know why you even asked. But everyone disagrees on this one, actually. Even conservative scholars disagree when Mark was written. Um, there is a, a, a tiny fragment uh, from the Dead Sea Scrolls that could push Mark back as early as 50 AD. Uh, that'd be pretty early. That's within 20 years of Jesus Christ's death. Um, but it could be as late as 70 AD. So th but the real question is, when was Mark written in relation to the other Gospels? This, this is kind of a big question, actually, because within the past um, century and a half, you know, 150, 160 years, theologians who think too much have come up with what they call the synoptic problem. Okay, the synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic means seen from the same place, just because Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell basically the same story, and John's just doing his own thing over there. You know, um, the synoptic problem is this. People read Matthew, they read Mark, they l read Luke, and they see, hey, these guys agree on the facts. They don't contradict each other, and they're telling about the same story. They use the same quotes from Jesus, same stuff. You know what? I bet they use the same notes. The synoptic problem is that the gospel writers agree on things. So people suggest that perhaps Mark was written first, and then Matthew kind of looked over his shoulder and mailed a copy to Luke, and then they put in their own details just to make it interesting. Now, I'm just thinking out loud here, but it doesn't really make sense for Matthew, who was an eyewitness, to depend on Mark, who was not an eyewitness, for the facts of the things that changed his life. His conversion story is in Matthew and Mark. Did he really need to find out how he got saved by reading Mark? I think not. Um, the solution to this problem is really that no such problem exists. The traditional view of the church for the first uh, 1,850 years of its existence is that the gospel writers were inspired by God and wrote independently of one another. First, uh, Second Peter 1.21 says, Holy men of God were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's how it happened. Now, it is true that 90% of the facts in Mark are present in Luke and Matthew. 90%, that's a lot. But I'll bet if you went and got three books about, say, the Civil War, you'd have similar results. The facts of the book would line up. The chronological order of what battles and where they took place and stuff like that, those would be the same. That doesn't mean that the authors collaborated. It just means that they were all good historians. Okay, in all of those books, Abe Lincoln is still president during the Civil War. Okay, that doesn't change, but you don't think, oh, you know, these pro guys probably called each other before they wrote their books. Church history, 
church tradition, the early church fathers, all disagree with the idea that Mark was written first or that the gospel writers collaborated. Matthew was written first, then Mark, then Luke, and then John last of all. Well then, if Mark shares 90% of its content with Matthew and Luke, why are we studying Mark? Okay, we've looked at reasons for having four different Gospels, but our study for the next 18 to 24 months will not be in the four Gospels. It will be in Mark. So we've got to focus in on this book now. What makes Mar Mark special? Why do we want to teach Mark? Other than that, it is the shortest one, so we can do it quickest. Um, I'm only kind of kidding about that. Even with an alarming amount of similarities between the first three Gospels, there are still things um, very different, very unique about the Gospel of Mark. And Mark, being the shortest gospel, does leave a lot out that is present in the other gospels. And it's stuff that's left out intentionally. All right? It's not things that Mark or Peter forgot about. It's things that are left out intentionally. This is sort of like an artist, a painter, using you know, negative space or a dark background to contrast with the thing he wants the viewer to focus on. It's almost like a silhouette or something. Okay? Um, there's things that are left out and... Uh, they're left out on purpose. For example, in Mark, there is no genealogy. There's no genealogy. There's no story of uh, the miraculous conception, no Christmas story. Okay, in Matthew, Jesus is being presented as the king of the Jews. We said that. Uh, for a king, a, gene a genealogy is important. Uh, in Luke, Jesus is the son of man. He is human, and it's important to notice details about his human family, which Luke does include. In Mark, Jesus is being presented as a servant, and the pedigree of a servant doesn't really matter that much. Another thing that is left out, there is no sermon, excuse me, there's no Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. The Sermon on the Mount uh, gave, you know, the king's manifesto. It was the constitution, like I said, of the kingdom of God. That's a real focus in the Gospel of Matthew. You see the kingdom of God come up all the time in that one. Now, Mark is presenting Jesus as a servant. And while not avoiding the topic of the kingdom of God, we'll see it in the first chapter, he isn't interested in presenting it in the fullness that Matthew already has. All right, another thing that's left out, there are fewer parables. There are only four parables in Mark. Luke has nearly 40. All right, nearly 40. Mark would rather spend his paper and ink on things that Jesus did. All right, even the four parables that he does include have to do with farming, have to do with a hard day's work, okay? Mark is all about what Jesus did. In Mark, there is no prophetic utterance against Jerusalem, okay? In Matthew and Luke, you have Jesus giving these, uh, these woes to the Pharisees. He says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And then it, it includes a prophecy of the judgment of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus said those things. Mark is not hiding the evidence, nor is he contradicting Matthew and Luke. But he's careful. He's carefully showing the side of Jesus that is a servant, according to 2 Timothy 2.24. 2 Timothy 2.24 says this, A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient. Jesus Christ was a servant like that. Now, along these lines, Mark leaves out the cleansing of the temple. 
uh, where Jesus made a whip of cords and drove out the money changers. This happened twice, actually. Neither of them are in the Gospel of Mark. Now, that's a real event that really happened, and it's a good story, but it's not it's not the way Peter remembered Jesus, and it's not helpful to his story. The impact that Jesus left on Peter was that of a gentle Savior. Okay? Peter remembers a gentle Jesus, a Savior who forgave him after he denied him. And that's what Peter wanted to talk about. That's who Peter preached. That's who Mark heard Peter preach about. And so that's what Mark writes down for us. Another peculiar thing that characterizes the Gospel of Mark is the word eutheos, okay, which is translated immediately. It's used something like 40 times in the book. Everything in Mark happens immediately, right away. It's an action story. And you get the same kind of feel with the Mark's, use of the Mark's use of the word and. Now, I don't want to make a big deal out of the word and, but he does. Uh, he starts most of his chapters with the word and, which is bad grammar in English, but I guess it's not in Greek or something. But what he's doing, he's connecting each of these chapters, paragraphs, with the one before it. He's leaving no break, no room for the reader to breathe between stories. And in doing so, he's providing an accurate picture of Jesus' life on earth, an accurate picture of Christ's service on this earth. It was nonstop. Mark tells uh, about the few occasions when Jesus got some time off because those times were so rare. He worked long days and long nights and woke up early so he would have time to pray before he did it all again. And in Mark, you see Jesus act immediately. And you realize that the stories are just happening one after another, after another, after another. And, and this is Christ serving God, being the servant of God, operating on God's timing. And God's timing is now. It's immediately. The gospel is for now. You know, we, we talk about waiting for the Lord and waiting on the Lord. And we sing about that. And that's, that's great. And in some regards, that's fine. But you know what? In, in a lot of ways, the waiting is over. The gospel is for now. Okay, go make disciples immediately. That's what Mark is about. It's about Jesus not hesitating to serve. He's serving now, and he's providing an example for us. Mark gives uh, kind of another side to Jesus. Also, he gives an undercover Savior uh, side of the story. Jesus was not just into pulling in the crowds. You can see in chapter 135, uh, he gets away from the crowds to pray. He went to small towns, and he kept on moving from town to town so as not to establish this massive movement before it was time. And, you know, we often imagine Jesus, we picture Jesus teaching, sitting on a hillside and teaching a massive crowd of people. And that's accurate. That, di that happened. And there are cases of that in Mark. But also in Mark, we see Jesus in people's homes. That's a neat way to picture Christ, isn't it? It may seem like a little thing, but the other gospel writers, Matthew, Luke, and John, they don't make this repeated statement about Jesus being in the house. First place you can see it is chapter 129. You see that it's Peter's house. So you see this connection again of Peter, whose memories these are, remembering Jesus as the guy who spent time in his home. And this, this picture of Jesus being in people's homes excites me. Okay, seeing Jesus in Mark as a guy who would share a meal with people and, you know, sleep on your couch. That's cool. 
I like that. And when Peter was leading the church in Acts chapter 2, we see that the church was eating with each other from house to house. Acts 2 verse 46. And this is the way that Peter remembered Jesus. He's leading the church in the behavior that he saw modeled by Jesus, with Jesus. Jesus was in Peter's home. Jesus filled Peter's home. I hope your homes are full of Jesus as well. This kind of up-close-and-personal Jesus that we see in this gospel, uh, I'm excited to see in our study. Throughout Mark, we are going to see Jesus touch people. Um, Luke chapter 4, Luke 4, 38, tells about Jesus healing Peter's mother-in-law. And it says that he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Okay, but in Mark, he tells the same story in Mark 1, 31. It says, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And several times in Mark, we, he, Mark adds that touch, that physical touch of Jesus. In chapter 141, Jesus touches a leper. Now, that's gross. It wasn't only gross. It was pretty much against the law in that culture. But he goes and touches this person who had probably not been touched for years, maybe decades. In chapter 8, verse 22, uh, you see a blind man begging for Jesus. Now, that's that's something that happens, you know, fairly regularly throughout the Gospels is sick people, blind people, uh, lame people, you know, begging for Jesus to heal them. But this man doesn't just ask to be healed. He's begging for Jesus to touch him. He's wanting Jesus to touch him. And that's what Jesus does. He touches people. Mark chapter ten thirteen says that they brought little children to him that he might touch them. And he does. In verse 16 of Mark 10, it says, And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. And this adds so much tenderness to the service of Jesus. And it puts you in a place, as you read this, where you know it's a great thing to be in the hand of God. It's a great thing knowing that you're safe in the arms of a Savior like this. On that note, Jesus feels things. And we'll see him have real human emotions in the Gospel of Mark. In Mark 1, 41, he heals that leper, and it says that he was moved with compassion. In chapter 3, the people in the synagogue, okay, the, the Jews, they don't want him to heal a person just because it's the wrong day of the week for that. And it says that he looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts. Okay, these are real human emotions. In chapter 10, Mark chapter 10, verse 21, it has a story of the rich young ruler, okay? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all have this story. It's a man who comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus starts by telling him, well, uh, how are you doing with the rules? You know, we've got the Ten Commandments. What do you think about those? And he says, oh, well, I've followed those since I was a little kid. Now, Matthew and Luke, they tell the same story, but Mark includes one little phrase that the others don't. Okay, now all of them include Jesus saying this, uh, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come take up the cross and follow me. Before saying that, Mark says that Jesus looking at him loved him. Jesus loved this man. The other gospels leave that part out. Jesus loved this guy. He was saying this. He wasn't saying this like, oh, well, you followed those commandments. Here's another one. He was saying, I see what is holding you back from being super close to me right now. And I love you. And I'm going to tell you what you need to do to become close to me again. And Jesus loved him. And, 
all of Jesus' ministry, his service, his words, they were born out of a love for people. That's why Jesus would touch the sick. That's why he would heal the sick. That's why he would eat with people in their homes. That's why he died. It's because his love drove him to action. All right, action. While there are fewer parables, I said that, than in Matthew and Luke, there are more miracles per chapter than both. Luke is the longest gospel word for word. It still has fewer miracles than in Mark because Mark is an action book. Jesus' love drove him to action, and Mark is, it's about doing. It's a book about actions that are driven by love. And in Mark, we see a hands-on Jesus who acts. And this is actually why I wanted to teach Mark, not because it's the shortest gospel. This is what excites me about Mark's account of Jesus. Okay, because I believe that Mark is a gospel for my generation, now, I, I want to explain that. A change has taken place in the way people think. Now, it used to be that people were concerned primarily with what was true. This isn't the distant past, certainly. You can, you can think about this in terms of the enemies of the gospel. Okay, you've got your, you know, your liberal university professors or whatever convincing their students as hard as they can that the Bible isn't true. And they figure if, if we can only convince people that it's not true, then we can sabotage their faith. And then you've had these great guys, men I admire, Josh McDowell and the like, writing books about how there was evidence that demanded a verdict, that the gospel was true. The Bible is true. And that's, that's great, okay? And, and that's, that's been a, a fight, you know, the, you know, battling for truth. But what we're seeing, and I'm not saying this is a good thing, I'm just saying that this is the way things are, and we have to be honest with ourselves. What we're seeing is that people, people my age and younger, are no longer asking, is it true? People are now asking, does it work? Now, this, this change in our culture um, has really thrown the church for a loop, honestly. On the one extreme, you've got these, you know— crazy people, what you'd call the emergent church, which are basically saying truth doesn't matter. Okay, well, good luck with that. That's ridiculous. But on the other hand, you also have people who are refusing to answer the question that is being asked. Okay? Now, I see this shift in thinking as an opportunity more than anything else. There is now a generation, my age and, and the one coming up after my, my generation, asking what works. And you know what? The Bible shows us a Savior that works. Now, I believe, I believe this, that the intellectual barriers that people throw up are usually thrown up for excuses, honestly. Um, but the, those barriers that people throw up saying, you know, the, the Bible isn't historically reliable. Jesus had a wife, blah, blah, blah. Okay, those are going to come down and people are going to be left asking, what does Jesus do what is he like in real life? And the Gospel of Mark, more than the other three Gospels, shows us a Savior with his feet on the ground, his mind in the game, and his hands busy at work. We see a Jesus who serves people because he loves people. And I think, and I'm glad this is recording so you can check back with this in 30 years, that Christians serving people the way Jesus served people will be the biggest tool for evangelism in the coming years. I believe that. And as we study through Mark, my prayer is that God will lead his church 
here in North Fork and anywhere else this is, this is heard, that he would lead his church to serve people like Jesus did. And I don't want to ruin the end of the story for you this early in the game or anything, but the last verse, the very last verse in, in Mark, Mark 16, 20, it talks about Jesus' followers, his disciples. This is us, okay? And it says, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. Okay, notice that. The Lord was working with them. It's an action story. It's about doing, and God is still doing stuff. We should be doing stuff too. Jesus is still on a mission and has invited, he has commanded us to be on that mission with him. Go, make disciples, and I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm going to close with a verse from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. The work of the Lord, that's what we need to be abounding in. So we're going to study this gospel. We're going to study Mark's gospel and see what the work of the Lord is, see how the Lord works, and we're going to get on board, and we're going to work with him. That's what Mark is about.